Hi everyone, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye.、Uh, today's episode is just me, Andy, with a special guest today. I'm very pleased, very honored to have Professor May Nye of Columbia University with us today. May, how are you doing? I'm fine. Good morning, Andy. May is Lung Family Professor of Asian American Studies and Professor of History at Columbia. She's the author of multiple award-winning books, and most recently,、uh, this year, she's come out with a new book, which we'll be talking about today. It is called the Chinese Question: The Gold Rushes in Global Politics. It's out with W. W. Norton,、um, which maybe we'll talk about this later. But it's a non-academic press, so the book is, I think, very readable, very accessible for listeners who are,、um, you know, obviously for those who are interested in history in academia, but even for non-academic listeners who are interested in this history, might would find it very clear, I think, and very accessible. Um, dare I say, authoritative、uh, as a history of the gold rush and the exclusion laws. How, how's 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 it going? How's it been, kind of launching the book and、um, dealing with that while in the pandemic? Well, the positive aspect of the pandemic is that most of my book events have been on Zoom. Yeah, I've only done one in-person event,、uh, which was at the New York Historical, and that was fine because it was simultaneously broadcast on Zoom, and the audience was. You know, spread apart, and the stage was far away. So, I felt comfortable enough doing that. But I'm really glad I don't have to fly around the country. Yeah, and go to little bookstore events. You know, where yeah, fifteen people. You know, who are your all all your friends that you dragged out <laughs> to attend. So I've been doing. I don't know. I've been doing a lot. I just it feels like it's one a week or more. Yeah,、um, interviews or or book events. So it's been it's been good. Yeah. yeah. So you know, today obviously we're going to dig into this book,、um, and you know, it might get a little nerdy. We're going to talk about the history of it, you know, between two historians. But obviously, in the second half of the conversation, hopefully, we can open it up and talk about the big picture implications of it.、Um, as you kind of open and end the book, you talk about the Chinese question of the 19th century、um, was very, or, or has become, or remains relevant in the 21st century. So you know, obviously, we want to dig into that.、Um, Uh, but before before we get into that, you know, for readers or for listeners who are、um, just kind of who want to learn more about the book, you know, it's it's about the history of migration, Chinese migration to California, Australia, South Africa in the nineteenth century, as well as the politics of exclusion, most famously the Chinese Exclusion Act of the United States. But as you point out, there are many of these laws、um, all throughout the Pacific Ocean or throughout the the sort of British、uh, Empire at the time. But before we delve into that, I thought it might be useful to just to begin with、um, just some background, or just some、um, uh, yeah, some background in terms of how was your your personal history, your family history, however much you want to share、uh, yourself, you know, family being migrating from China to the United States. How did that kind of get you started into thinking about not just this book, but in general your your career as a historian of Asian America、um, and, and not just Asian America of migration、uh, to the United States? Right. Well, thank you. My parents were immigrants、uh, from China. They came after World War II. They met each other in medical school in China, and they came to the United States in 1946 to pursue advanced training. And then there was civil war in China and、uh, the revolution in 1949. And they decided not to go back. They had planned to go back, 
um, but they changed their minds in part because my mother came from a Republican family who and her father was uh, in the Kuomintang government. So he went to Taiwan and they stayed in the States. And uh, something I only learned fairly late in life from them was that they were given permanent residence um, green cards in the early 50s by the U.S. government. They were part of a cohort that the government called the stranded Chinese students, Chinese who were studying in the U.S. Uh, at the time of the revolution and uh, for whatever reason could not go back or did not want to go back. And this was similar to what they did after Tiananmen when they also just ceremoniously gave um, green cards to every Chinese student in the United States at the time who wanted to stay. So anyway, so they stayed and, um, you know, I came of age in the late sixties. And so I was, uh, protested for civil rights and against the Vietnam war and landed in New York's Chinatown as a community activist. So, you know, then I had, I had a whole other life before I went to academia as an activist and um, worked in Chinatown, worked with Chinese workers and actually workers of all backgrounds. I worked for a while in a hospital as a nurse's aide and became active in my union there. So when I decided finally to go back to school, um, I wanted to study immigration history and Asian American history. Um, and so I didn't start as I didn't begin defining myself as an Asian American historian, um, more as an immigration historian, but that always in my mind and in my work included Asian American history, but a certain strand of it, shall we say. Yeah. Where was your family from? Um, what were they from Southern China? Cause I know a lot of your work has been about Southern Chinese immigrants or is that just unrelated because you're, it happens to be Southern Chinese immigrants who migrated so much in the 19th century. Yeah. It's more the latter. Although yeah. I have one grandparent who is Cantonese, Okay, but my parents are both from Hubei province. Wow. That's actually my story. <laughs> oh, I, I have okay. one grandmother from, from, uh, from Guangdong and three from, we think from Hubei, but we're not really, yeah, we're also, uh, what's the word alienated from our, from our origins as well. Uh, yeah, so you haven't you you or your family haven't gone back to look we, them up. We have connections to the Cantonese side, um, uh -huh. and we think we uh, it's interesting. But we have connections to the Hubei side, but that has kind of disappeared. But there was some kind of reconnecting happening in the eighties and nineties. Did your family do any of that in the eighties and nineties? Yeah, yeah, in the eighties exactly. My parents went back, and um, they had already had had contact with. Uh, my mostly well both my parents sides my my father had uh his siblings were either in china or in canada he came from a very large family so maybe three or four of his siblings were still in china uh, they weren't all in uh hubei one of them was in wuchang but others yeah. were in uh beijing yeah and on my mother's side there were people still in beijing and shanghai oh wow uh, and my father's side too so 
Um, I met them all when I went for the first time in the 90s. Um, wow. And sadly, only only one of my cousins is still alive, and he's quite elderly. Yeah. I haven't seen him in, in a number of years. Wow. When you say that you didn't necessarily see yourself as an Asian-American historian, you know, your first book is actually uh, mostly... Chinese migration is part of it, but it's also Mexican, Filipino, Japanese, very expansive. It's, you know, and it's, um, you know, it's like, it's really a great book. Um, Was there, well, what what was the thought process? Why did you not want to kind of, did you feel like you didn't want to only do quote unquote, only Chinese or only Asian migration at first? Or what was the thought process? When I started graduate school, um, as a first year student, you write, uh, a year, you, you take a year-long seminar course and write an, a math, what, what counts as your master's essay. Yeah. So for that project, I wrote about the Chinese confession program, which was uh, a Justice Department INS program in the late 50s. It ran through most of the 60s that legalized Chinese who were here as the so-called paper sons. Right. So as many of your listeners may know, paper sun migration was the main form of evasion of the exclusion laws through much of the 20th century. And some people estimated that at least half of the Chinese American population in 1950 uh, was of paper sun lineage. So this was a process by which people had papers that said they were the son of a citizen, but it was all imposture. So they lived under fake names and they had their fake family and their real families. And it was uh, a very oppressive situation because people were basically living in the shadows, um, you know, uh, very fearful that they could be picked up at any time. So in the 1950s, uh, after the Chinese Revolution, the INS believed, I think falsely, but believed that the communists were using paper sons to infiltrate the United States <laughs> as spies. <laughs> yeah. And um, even though it was actually very difficult to get in as a paper son, because you had to face like intense interrogation. And by that time, they were doing blood tests on people, et cetera, et cetera. So the government came up with this program that if you confessed not only to your own illegal status, but you revealed everybody in your family that they could close off the, 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 the whole pro program. So they legalized, I don't know, some 30,000 plus people. So that's what I wrote my MA thesis about. Mm-hmm. And then I w- I thought about what would I do next should I continue to write about Chinese American history or Asian American history? Um, but the, this whole question of what it meant to be illegal struck me as something that was worth exploring. And because the confession program took place in the 1950s, it contravened conventional wisdom that nothing really happened in immigration before 1965. And in fact, most American historians thought that between 1924, when the gates were closed to Europeans, and 1965, basically nothing happened. So I said, well, there was stuff happening. So anyway, so I took that route. And and so the book includes both um, the Japanese internment episode, which I deal with from the point of view of citizenship, 
and the confession program, but it's a broader question of so-called illegal and other irregular kinds of migration. Yeah. Was, um, I, I looked at, you know, the people you worked with, some of the kind of famous historians at Columbia, Eric Foner, uh, Betsy Blackmar, Barbara Fields, but if I'm not mistaken, none is necessarily a specialist, right, on Asian American history. Did you find, like, at the time, this is in the 1990s, right, you were sort of, you just kind of had to, like, forge it by yourself. Has Asian American studies, do you feel like it's, like, it's grown a lot since you were a grad student? Or has it expanded? Or do you feel like, you know, how, do, how, what, what are the major changes you've seen from, like, the 90s to today in terms of Asian American studies? That's a great question. Um I think I was a part of I was part of a cohort of Asian American historians who were largely trained by non-Asian Americanists. At that time, there were very very few professors in Asian American history, maybe a handful. Um, but when I went to grad school, there was a lot of interest in Asian American studies and Asian American history. So. Myself and actually a lot of my peers um, from my cohort were trained by non, non-Asian Americanists. And since that time, we and others after us have trained our own graduate students. So that's a big change. Um, there are still not enough uh, faculty who work in Asian American history. There's a lot of uh, searches this year. There's a lot of hiring going on because students have been really persistent in demanding Asian American studies. And I think this year the universities kind of woke up after eight people were killed in Atlanta. Uh, It's a terrible way to have a wake up call, but um, they started listening to the students. So uh, unfortunately, Columbia is not one of them (laughs) that's hiring (laughs) in this field, but there's hiring going on all over the country right now, some where there are no Asian American studies. Um, so I think that's a positive thing. And um, so, the, so the field has changed a lot, I think, because uh, we have more depth now. We have more generation. We have a couple of generations. Some of my grad students, my former grad students are now training grad students. So that's nice to see, but it makes yeah. me feel kind of like a grandparent. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, out of curiosity, did you ever consider doing, you know, my route, which is like Asian studies proper, uh, which I'm still not sure exactly why I did it as opposed to Asian American, but I guess that's like the crossroads, right? Yeah. And, you know, I, I can speak Chinese and I can read some Chinese, but I I don't think my linguistic skills were, right. um, were adequate to pursue East Asian yeah. study, uh, history. Because it's not only Chinese, you have to know two other Asian yeah. languages, yeah. right? Well, yes, I mean, so kudos to you, Andy. <laughs> no, I mean, we all cram that once we get into grad school. But I also think, you know, I assume you probably felt like there was a more of an organic connection um, working in Chinatown and um, kind of thinking about those, the, the writing about the people you actually know in real life as opposed to... Exactly. Right? Yeah. Right. So why don't we jump into the book itself a little bit more? Um, so... Uh, I can just kind of quickly summarize a few lines and then kind of have you right respond. But the book, just a, the my quick summary of the book is it's looking at the three big gold rushes of the 19th century or early 20th in California, Australia, and South Africa. Um, and it is it begins as a sort of social 
economic history of like what is this what is gold how does it get discovered and how does it bring in Chinese many immigrants but especially Chinese immigrants to these parts of the world but I also think the connective tissue throughout the book is that um, is a, a I don't know if it's intellectual or cultural and or, uh, uh, the tracing the history of an argument um, or the evolution or the circulation of a kind of racism or racial stereotype of these Chinese migrants that ultimately justifies policies of exclusion, right? And the, in particular, the racial stereotype was that these Chinese migrants were all quote unquote coolies, which is um, almost a Chinese specific stereotype that these workers are unfree they're similar to enslaved, enslaved black workers in the U.S. in the sense that collectively their the sort of lowly status would worsen the conditions for other working people, but particularly white white working people, right? So if there's anything, and so that's what I would say is like the broad, now it's a very you know, four, five, four, 400, 500 page book. It talks about three parts of the world, so I can't do justice to all of it. But um, I thought it was interesting. You begin the book by talking about you, this this desire to quote unquote slay the coolie myth. Do you want to kind of maybe expand upon that for the listeners? I was interested in the gold rush era because that is the time when you have the first large scale encounters between Chinese and whites, or Europeans and Amer- and white Americans. It's not the first contact, obviously, but it's the first time when large groups of Chinese and large groups of white people come together in a common endeavor that is digging for gold. Um, and, uh, and it's the grounds from which uh, a lot of politics uh, ensue or, or germinate. And so to think about the origins of exclusion policies, I, I needed to go back to the beginning, so to speak, right? And I located on the gold fields uh, in California, especially, um, and in California politics. But it led me abroad. Actually, it, it led me abroad kind of uh, serendipitously. I, I was in Australia at a conference on ch- overseas Chinese history. And the conference was held in this little town called Bendigo in the interior of Victoria, which is an old gold mining town. And there's a Chinese museum there and a Chinese cemetery. And the funny thing, Andy, is what struck me was how the landscape of the Victorian Midlands looked like Northern California, (laughs) down to the eucalyptus trees, which we know actually came from Australia and were imported into California. Oh, okay, wow. But the landscape, it just was so familiar. And I thought, gee, I wonder if gold mining takes place in similar, you know, conditions, and it does, I found out yeah. that's not just where it's located, but who locates it and how they're able to extract it. Because indigenous people or Aboriginal people in Australia, they knew of gold in their midst for, for you know, for generations, but they didn't value it in the same way. They didn't consider it money. And it's only after gold is the money commodity, and it's only when capitalism has the wherewithal to extract it in large quantities in a way that's profitable that you have these um, phenomena called the gold rushes. And so they bring people from all over the world. They are international contact zones, so to speak. Um, So it's in this milieu of 
international contact among people from all over the world and a very heady, competitive environment that racial stereotypes emerge. So that's what got me started. And then I figured, hey, I'll just go back to Australia and research what happened there. (laughs) And then that path led me to South Africa. So there were times when I thought I bit off a lot more than I could chew. Yeah. Um, but it, it took me a long time to digest all of it. Yeah. So you started with California. And I mean, did you have a sort of talk with yourself? Like, do I actually want to do two, three countries? Like, uh, or, or do you feel like you were compelled to do so? The story demanded sort of, it wouldn't be complete unless you actually fleshed out um, sort of the, the, the full travel of this idea of the Cooley myth. Yeah, I well, there were times when I wondered if I, you know, lost my mind. Right? right. Yeah. But I wanted to do it from the beginning because I had been to Australia and I had seen it. Yeah. And then the serendipity continued because I went to another conference in Pretoria, organized by the same group. It's the uh, International Society for the Study of Chinese Overseas. And so while I was in South Africa, I spent a few days in the archives looking at the Chinese labor program there in the gold mines. So I said, well, there's a comparative study here that would be interesting. You know, it'll take some time to do, but, you know, let's try. So I didn't really know what I would be comparing, what I would find when I started. Um, I had no idea what I would find um, in terms of a comparative argument. But, you know, it, the thing that actually struck me was that the Cooley idea did not really take on the Australian gold fields because Australians don't have the proximate example of black slavery, which is what it depended on in the United States. Right. So it didn't have any legs in Australia. In Australia, the legacy of unfreedom was convict transportation, right. Of English and Irish poor people. So in Australia, the Cooley myth doesn't come up until 20 years later in the context of urban trade union movements. And there they borrow directly from the United States, from the Working Men's Party in San Francisco, and they imbibe the Cooley myth and they make it their own. Yeah. Maybe we should flesh out, um, just for, for listeners, what exactly was the Cooley myth in the California case? How did it work out? And so it's an argument against, you know, the Chinese, like how, what was the comparison there between Chinese workers as coolies and black workers as enslaved? And like, how, yeah, what was that dynamic? The coolie myth in California doesn't actually start on the gold fields. It starts in Sacramento in California state politics. And uh, the governor at the time in 1852 John Bigler is a Democrat. He's the first governor of California. He's in a tight race for re-election, and he knows that he needs to get more voters on his side. So he appeals to white miners in the interior by raising the specter of a Chinese invasion. And he says they're all coolies. 20,000 of them are on the way. Another 20,000 will be here in, in a few months. There'll be 100,000 of these coolies swarming the state. And he says they work for pennies. Their families are held hostage uh, to the, you know, till the completion of their contracts, um, et cetera, et cetera. So he he raises this 
specter of the Cooley takeover. Um, and lo and behold, he wins re-election and yeah. he, he wins handily in the mining districts. And what he's done is he's appealed to a grievance among whites, which is that their own livelihoods are at stake. And that is true by the early 1850s, even even within a few years of the gold rushes uh, beginning, the easy gold that you can, you know, just kind of pan out of the river, it's diminishing. And already companies are making big capital investments in deep mining. So an independent prospector, regardless of their nationality, is having a much harder time by 1852. So this is what I believe a classic nativist strategy, which is that you appeal to a grievance, you offer up a theory that explains the reason for your precarity, and you weaponize it for electoral gain. So what's interesting is that on the gold fields, there were some areas who, who were one to Bigler's side and who uh, passed resolutions in their own mining districts saying Chinese are forbidden to work in our district, or at least they're forbidden to dig for first claims, right? They wanted the option to sell to Chinese claims that they wanted to abandon. But when I researched the, the sources in California, what I saw was that in, in many places, miners didn't do that. You know, there's um, the, one of the most famous resolutions came out of Columbia uh, in Tuolumne County. And, um, and I looked at the a directory of Tuolumne County's mining districts, and Columbia was the only district out of 20 that had a resolution or had anything in their bylaws forbidding Chinese to mine there. So it actually was a much more uneven process. It was um, a political gambit that paid off during elections. Um, and and you, can, you can think about it maybe like today where you have very strong nativist and racist sentiments in parts of the population, you know, ugly, ugly stuff right. that's weaponized in elections and fuels violence. But it's not everyone and everywhere. Yeah. Uh, so we tend to think that Chinese exclusion just kind of took over California, and it, it did take over the politics of California. But it was not. It was much different. More. It was much more complicated on the ground. Yeah. Yeah, and you know the Bigler um, story is taking place in the early 1850s, and this is still 30 years before national exclusion. Um, you point out that Bigler didn't really have a long career after that. So he just kind of, he won, I guess, one election based on that strategy, but couldn't have a very successful career. Yeah. And I think the relevance is obvious. Um, you know, the analogies to the present in terms of scapegoating, um, I don't know, immigrants or alien, quote unquote, alien people for sort of domestic or, um, sort of everyday economic struggles. Um, and I think what's interesting about this is a lot of the, the argument against Chinese labor was, as you point out, very much kind of um, of a piece with sort of abolitionist politics or free soil politics, which is to say, like, the, these are the people who would say it's like, you know, humans shouldn't be enslaved. It's like, this is subhuman conditions. And we tend to think of these as the good guys of history, right? They're the ones who freed the slaves or the ones who fought for independence and natural rights and so on. But 
we see in the, in, in this case, the, those politics kind of get twisted in a way that justifies mistreatment or abuse of, of um, you know, in this case, Chinese people. Um, there's a sort of, I don't know if it's an irony there, but it's, it sort of kind of interrupts our, um, our, our assumptions about like, who are the good and the bad people in history, right? Well, the free solos were also more complicated. There are twists in their story as well. They're not coterminous with the abolitionists. They were anti-slavery, but they were not necessarily for abolition. So they opposed the extension of slave territories, you know, during the whole sectional period uh, that leads up to the Civil War. But they, you know, you could say they were racist too. Yeah. You know, uh, Oregon Territory, uh, when it formed, its constitution forbade blacks in the territory, slave and free. Right. So they were against slavery as an institution, but they weren't necessarily for the emancipation of slaves. A lot of them supported colonization, you know, send them back to Africa. Um, so free soil had to do with free labor uh, versus slave labor, and we'll put free labor in quotes. But it was not necessarily uh, pro-emancipation. That comes later. So Bigler is not inconsistent with that strand in the Democratic Party, um, which, you know, the Democrats at that time are split between the North and the South, with the Southern Democrats being, you know, the pro-slavery elites um, and, and throughout the white population. But in the North, the Democratic Party had a history of being associated with working, working men's politics free labor politics, a politics of independence that adheres to free labor, meaning one owns one's own tools or one owns one's land that one farms themselves. And so this as an ideology was complicated when it came to race because it did not necessarily embrace abolition as its cause. So there was an anti-slavery movement that was a very big tent and there were other people in it. So in that sense, Chinese exclusion was not that much in contradiction with the anti-slavery politics at the time. But because of that, to associate Chinese with blacks was a very canny and successful tactic to smear them with the charge of being slave-like. Right. Um yeah, and so in your in in the sort of the first half of the book, especially when you kind of kind of paint a picture and tell us, well, what was life like for a lot of these Chinese migrants? You do kind of um, make sure we we the, the reader knows that this is not uh, the stereotype of enslaved Chinese workers who are brought and sold by Chinese merchants and so on. Um, what were what? How would you kind of um, describe the sort of average Chinese miner or the the, the these miners as they came to the U.S. or Australia? You know, I, I knew from the beginning that to slay the Cooley myth, I had to tackle it as both an empirical question and as a discursive question. Because there's so much confusion in the historical literature. And that's a whole other story. We, if you really want to get into the nerdy weeds, yeah. we can talk about that. Why did that myth reproduce amongst historians, right? So... So I had to tackle it as an empirical question. Well, what what did they do? 
how did they come? And in fact, there were some Chinese who came under contract in the very beginning uh, of the first arrivals in 1850. And actually, they were not the only ones who came under contracts. I mean, there were um, Mexican people from Mexico, from Sonora and Chile, uh, who brought contracted workers with them to the gold fields. There were whites from the South who brought enslaved blacks with them to the gold fields. But what happened on the gold fields is that you can't hold people who are under contract. They just walk away. Yeah, right. There's no, there's no ability to hold anybody to a contract. There's no sheriff you can call to round them up and arrest them. It's wide open country. People just walked away and, you know, went digging on their own. So contract labor or what you could call indentured labor or coolie labor is an utter failure, not just for Chinese, but for every every nationality group that tries it uh, within a within less than a year. And so what you have left on the gold fields are people who come on their own account or who borrow family money um, or you know, they form a company, you know, a lot of uh, 49ers who came from the Eastern United States, they formed companies, right? And they got people in their towns to invest share, in shares that would pay for their way. Um, so Chinese came like others, you know, they, they came on their own account, basically, sometimes borrowing money, sometimes not. And what I discovered was that People all did basically the same thing on the gold fields. The Chinese worked in ways that whites and Europeans and Latin Americans worked. First, they worked in the riverbeds and the streams, sifting the gravel and dirt. Uh, the hardest way was with a pan, right? Uh, nobody did that. You know, you do that for a day and you're saying yeah. there's got to be a different, a different <laughs> way of doing this. So they worked as partners or in small groups, you know, with uh, rudimentary equipment, especially a rocker, which, you know, you could build very easily. And then the technology inches up from there. And what I found was that different nationality groups brought different kinds of techniques or invented different techniques, and then they become universal. So even the pan itself um, is based on a, a basket, a woven basket that was used in Mesoamerica, you know, centuries before. Uh, but things like the rocker, sluicing, you know, all, all the different early techniques uh, that are all fairly rudimentary, somebody invents it and everybody starts to use it. So Chinese were very much like other gold seekers in terms of the methods that they used. And in terms of their labor organization, um, they had similar patterns to whites, although they, they were different in their particulars. So, so as I said, nobody wants to pan for gold because it's too hard. It's too arduous. So everybody works in, in either with partners or in a small group. And in the Chinese case, they had two kinds of cooperative mining. One was a small company uh, where there was a manager or investor who was typically a merchant that merchant was likely a former gold miner who did well uh, and then bought a bunch of claims and then hired people to work for him. Uh, and they usually operated on shares, which was a way of spreading risk with the merchant getting half and the other guys splitting the difference. And then there was the egalitarian cooperative, which had no boss, 
shared everything, profits and expenses. And those cooperatives were usually associated with the Zhigongtang, the uh, Secret Brotherhood Society um, that spread out of China after the Taiping Rebellion. And it's everywhere. It's, yeah. it's in Southeast Asia, it's in Australia, it's in California. They go by different names in different places, but they all have the same ritual oath, oaths yeah. and book, right? And they're, they're marginal men who are estranged from their native families or villages. And so it's a, it's a brotherhood, but it's a fictive kin. Yeah. And they were often predatory towards outsiders, but they were internally very strictly egalitarian. And so that was a, a popular form on the goldfields. And you can see it in the records when you see in Australian mining registers. And you can also see in American registers, but the American ones are more, more scarce. But you see, you know, a bunch of guys with a claim and they all, it all says one quarter, one quarter, one quarter, one quarter, or one six, six people each owning a six. That's an egalitarian labor cooperative. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. As opposed to a guy who has a larger claim and he owns the whole thing uh, and he can't mine it himself because it's too big. So you then you figure out, well, he must have people working for him. Yeah. I am curious then. Um, you mentioned you, you, you might, listeners might find it boring if you go into why this mythology spread among historians. <laughs> but I actually kind of thought that leads to another question I had, which is, um, like when I, when I learned a little bit about this before I, I was studied with, um, you know, my advisor, Adam McCune, your colleague at Columbia, and we did a lot of readings about Chinese and Asian diaspora. And my inclination, especially in grad school, when I had just discovered Marx and the, the his, all of history is a history of exploitation. I was always kind of in that direction. Like this is about exploitation. This is about horrible working conditions. And he would push back, you know, kind of using the same, evidence there are the same sort of anecdotes that you were talking about and i wonder is there um was there so, has there always been this temptation to believe that chinese workers and chinese migrants were exploited and unfree and so on was that out of almost like a leftist impulse to kind of kind of this sort of a priori assumptions that everyone who was migrating must have come under horrible conditions and in a way that there's a sort of there's a way in which like um a sort of leftist political impulse kind of feeds into, ironically, a sort of racial stereotype um, of Chinese workers as, um, you know, perpetuating these stereotypes of Chinese workers as being a very sort of dehumanizing culture and towards and treating its people poorly and so on. Um, so I, I wonder, like, did you kind of wrestle with that yourself in terms of you want to you want to portray this not as this kind of migration pattern, not as one of unfree, coolie, servitude, and so on. Um, but you don't, do you worry about like, do you think about, well, am I trying to, am I, am I, I don't want to romanticize this either. I don't want to make it sound like it was like the perfect situation either, right? But you're also trying to correct for a, a stereotype in the literature. I think that's a great insight that you have. Um, the coolie myth uh, was perpetuated by scholars in part because left-wing scholars embraced it and they embraced it be out of their opposition to racism right so they didn't do enough research to conclude that they were not coolies that the chinese were not coolies but 
they opposed the oppression of the Chinese, uh, which was plain in local politics. And, and it seemed to offer an explanation for why whites were against the Chinese. So they could just kind of skip over the empirical question as were they contract workers? Now, if they were, we would also oppose their oppression. Right. Right. But, and, and Alexander Saxton, who is, you know, the first American historian to write about Chinese exclusion politics in a, a book that's excellent, still excellent, is written in the 70s called The Indispensable Enemy. And it was all about how whites use the Chinese question uh, for their own ends, for their labor and political ends. And, and Saxton kind of says, actually it doesn't matter if they were contracted or not, because they were also oppressed and their conditions were so terrible. So uh, whether or not they were actually under contract, at the end of the day, they still suffered. And I don't agree with that. I think yeah. it, it actually does matter yeah. because then then you because if you have to if you want to explain the politics, you have to know what it's if it's based on something that's you know real or or imagined. So um, and other people have similarly written this even recently that um, uh, their their conditions were so terrible it, it actually doesn't even matter what the formal legal status is. And, and I think that that impulse has not been constructive uh, because it feeds into the stereotype. And I think if we want to slay this myth, the stereotype, we have to, we have to go back to what is actually happening on the ground. And, and so I think another thing you do that's, uh, I'm sure you found this important too, you include a lot of voices of Chinese merchants themselves who are contesting the stereotype in their own day. Is this Was that something that you felt was missing in the literature or that was like a necessary corrective to basically a, a literature based only on like kind of white sources? Yeah, it's really, it's, it's really a challenge to find the Chinese voices. Actually they're there. It's not that hard <laughs> if you look for them. And a lot of it's actually in English. Some yeah. of it's in Chinese, but most of it is actually in English that that's about or written in California or Australia. Some of the first, Merchant leaders who spoke out against uh, anti spoke out against um, coolism were uh, fully bilingual because they had gone to missionary schools in Hong Kong or, or some such. So, um, and uh, if you if you go looking, you can find it. It's not that hard. I found it. Right. <laughs> I'm not a magician. I didn't conjure <laughs> it up. I found it. Um, but you have to go, you have to look for it and then, and then you see what they write and what they write is interesting. It's, you know, some of it is respectability politics, you know, yeah. we're not drunkards. We're not thieves. We don't fill your jails. You know, we're, res- we, we're respectable people. Some of it is of that, uh, angle, which is not unexpected. Some of it is a little confused about racial politics in the U S or not confused, some of it is um, uh, influenced by um, racial politics. 
it's like, well, we're, we're more like the white man than the yeah, black. Yeah. That quote, you know, we're closer yeah. to being white than black. I mean, that has a weird echo today. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So, um, so, you know, it's not, you know, you have to take it, take them for what they say and then understand it and, and, um, and analyze it. Yeah. Um, maybe we can take this to um, a broader discussion about sort of, Ultimately, I think the second half of the book, especially, is about the history of a, a racial concept and how it how it how it kind of circulates. And um, you know, you and I were kind of speaking beforehand about. Um, I think there is a tendency these days to talk about race, racism, and white supremacy in a way that is a little ahistorical. Um, I, there's the, the one kind of shorthand that's out there uh, is this uh, idea of. Uh, or the school, let's say, of, of Afro-pessimism that would say, like, white supremacy is this thing that's kind of built into the DNA of this country, and it's been there all along. And what we see with sort of uh, police shootings and murders the last decade is just a continuation of something that's kind of been there all along. Um, and I'm wondering, um, in, in writing this history, were you kind of conscious about how do you, how do you kind of navigate this question of race and racism Um were you thinking about trying to make sure it was not ahistorical? How do you historicize it at the same time? How do you, you know, avoid downplaying it and making it sound like it's just like not a big deal or some people say it's like epiphenomenal, like it's just a secondary effect. Um, yeah. Like what were what, what, what some thoughts you had in terms of like, how are you going to approach this question of the history of racism? Well, I am a historian, so I can't approach it in any other way. Um, I think when I was in graduate school, there was a lot of pushback against those who thought that race was epiphenomenal. Um, actually, that comes out of a Marxist tradition, right. right? That thinks everything is class and race can be reduced to class. So I didn't agree with that. Uh, so part of my work was to push back against that idea. But as a historian, I also believe strongly that Race, like any school of thought, any ideology, um, is historically produced. You know, humans don't carry a, a gene for any ideology, any way of thinking, right? And so the thing about race and racism is that it's only produced historically and and in the specificities and what historians say are the contingencies of history that certain uh, political and social and economic interests uh, converge um, for whatever reasons have mass appeal, like I talked about Bigler, um, and and hold sway uh, in sectors of the population. And the thing about racism is that it has to be reproduced constantly, right? Like what Bigler said in 1852 uh, has some resonances, resonance. What Bigler said in 1852 has some resonance with what you hear in more recent times, but it's not the whole of it. And so like any, any political viewpoint for it to have salience and power, it has to fit the times. So, Racism has to be specific, and it has to be produced and reproduced over time. So there's been there was a lot of writing and discussion after the Atlanta murders 
about the history of anti-Asian violence. And what you mostly saw in the media was a litany. We suffered this, then we suffered that, then we suffered this again. And it's this long history of, um, of oppression. And much of it was ahistorical. It didn't explain why or how it was that these different views or, or actions um, occurred. And so what I've been trying to add to that conversation is some historical context as to the origins of anti-Chinese and anti-Asian racism and violence and how it got reproduced over a hundred plus years. And I, I think this approach as, um, you know, I guess what you and I would call a historical approach, I think it's really important because if you don't have an understanding of the politics that produce racism, then you have no way of thinking about how to change it. Yeah. Right. If we understand things as, as a result of politics, then we understand a lot more. We can understand a, like I said, not every single person is a racist. Uh, B that there's actually some hope in organizing a counter trend. Right. Um, and and so if you if you just think that it's 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 in our DNA or that it's always there, always been there, then it always will be there. Then you know what's the point of getting up in the morning? I just think that you know if if so so in large part my book was to slay the Cooley myth in order to understand racism as a product of politics and history that would give us some way of shifting our thinking towards racism in our own time. Yeah, so you wrote a piece this spring about, you know, in the wake of the Atlanta shootings, partly, you know, talking about your book, but partly trying to connect it to the present. What was it like this spring knowing that your book is about to come out, but, you know, we seem to have all these headlines about anti-Asian, anti-Chinese violence, and obviously Atlanta. Was that um, forcing you to kind of rethink or look at your work in a different way, thinking about the relevance of it or thinking about maybe, you know, here's a different angle on some of these questions um, yeah, how did it make you kind of think about your work differently? I don't know if it made me think about the work differently. Not that much. I mean, I've been writing it for several years, and unfortunately, there's always a relevance in our own time. So um, it's still a problem. I think obviously the issue became a lot more urgent, you know, with Trump's lashings about the virus and all the hate and violence and then what happened in Atlanta, obviously. Uh, but even after Atlanta, you know, people beating up our seniors in Oakland Chinatown and San Francisco Chinatown. It was just appalling. Um, and so it was very complicated. And it was, I mean, unfortunately, all these harms led to led some people <laughs> to want to know more about Asian American history and anti-Asian violence. That book, Minor Feelings by Kathy Hong Park, that's a tremendous, uh, tremendously insightful and moving book. And I think it became a bestseller in part because of this moment that we're in. And a lot more people want to know, what does it mean to be an Asian American? You know, it's like we're, the whole problem is in of racism against Asians. It's mostly been invisible until this last year and and it's still not well understood so we still have a lot of work to do 
Um, I think I think you're right that you know there were have these you would have these you know I don't want to like say the blame anyone people were kind of churning out these pieces very quickly this spring but you would have these sort of laundry lists starting probably with the Page Act and then you know internment and so on um, and so I think you know if one were to look at your book in a very naive way they would think oh you're doing the same thing you're just looking at Chinese exclusion as the origin. Um, but as you say, you're kind of you're complicating that. You're trying to situate it within this historical context. I do wonder, though, and this is something we talk about a lot in the podcast, and I'm kind of saying this in a sort of devil's advocate way, though. Um, is there? Do we necessarily have to take Bigler and Chinese exclusion as our history in the sense that, um, especially for people, you know, you came to this country in the 40s, I came to this country in the 80s. Do we have these different distinct waves of migration? Um, if for those who've come to this country only in the last couple of decades, um, do you see an argument for like, well, that isn't necessarily the same thing as the 1850s, 1860s moment? Um, is it collapsing things or is it essentializing things to to say this is one kind of, um, to suggest that it's a, there's a continuity from the 1850s? Well, there certainly may not be a continuity in the recent immigrants' families' histories. People who came you know, after 1965 or after 1970, are not connected to the gold rush era. They're not even connected to my era, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, I was born at the tail end of the exclusion era, right? So um, they're not personally connected, but they reap the whirlwind of that history when they're attacked on the street. So uh, I think more recent immigrants uh, from Asia, uh, I've spoken to people who want to know more about what accounts for this racism. And uh, so I think that, you know, I mean, anybody can put their head in the sand and say, it's not about me. That's not peculiar to Asians, a lot of people have their heads in the yeah. sand these days. Yeah. Sometimes I want to pull the covers over my head yeah. too. Yeah. So that's that's not a particularly Asian thing. Um, although I will say that people who have some uh, ex- come from a more privileged background and experience some success. Uh, feel like they they can afford to put their head in the sand. They don't want to rock the boat. But even even amongst people who are more highly educated and have better jobs, um, they feel it too. You know, um, among Asian American and Chinese American scientists, there's a lot of anxiety about the China Initiative which started under Trump, but it's continued under Biden, which is a witch hunt against Chinese American and Chinese nationals who are scientists, accusing them of stealing secrets and giving it to China. Yeah. And the whole thing is, is completely absurd. They, ha- they don't have one case that they, they can prove this. So then they went after people uh, for tax evasion because they didn't, you know, they didn't listen honorarium they got from a Chinese university. And people have lost their jobs over this. You know, some universities have fired tenured professors uh, of Chinese descent. And so it's just absolutely horrible. 
And so I have colleagues here at Columbia who are very worried. Columbia has not um, supported the China Initiative and to our knowledge has not thrown under the bus any of its own faculty. But the Chinese faculty at Columbia, and I include in this, the scientists are very concerned and it's led them to examine not just that policy, but led them to examine where they stand in general in the university. Yeah. You know, many of them are very prestigious uh, scientists. They've done excellent research, but they feel invisible too and, and not recognized. So there's, there's a lot going on right now. Yeah. Yeah. I had, you know, someone just, um, alerted me that NYU in particular has two kids of, I believe, two scientists who were not fired, but more or less fired or more or less like suspended. For no, no, they reason. were fired. Oh, they were fired. They were fired. They lost their tenure. They were fired. Yeah, it's terrible. What NYU did is terrible. Yeah. And I think there's a case in Temple and in, in Philly as well. But then I think this raises kind of the question that you raise at the end of the book, which is that the, you know, at, at the end of the book, you say the Chinese question has been revived and repurposed in the 21st century. So obviously, scientists at NYU are not the same thing as gold miners in California, right? So, um, and, and for someone who would say, like, well, they, they're totally different, they, they belong to different class situations, different types of jobs, what is the connective tissue um, between those sort of gold miners in the 19th century and the, you know, what are examples of the Chinese question? What are examples of yellow peril that you see in the news today? That might be a good way to start. Well, a lot of it has to do with how the United States views China, how it viewed China in the 19th century is obviously different than how it views China today. But that that provides an overall frame for how Chinese immigrants are are regarded. So in the 19th century, the United States and other Western powers looked at China as a kind of colonial prize, even though no Western power actually colonized China. It treated China like a colony in that it wanted to have um, it as a market for for goods, as a market for uh, saving its souls. Right by the missionaries, um, and and to contain it, right. So the famous open door policy that was pronounced by John Hay, Secretary of State, nineteen hundred, was that you know the United States wanted China to be an open door, but what he didn't say was that it would be a door that only opened one way, right. So it was an utterly <laughs> colonial concept that we go to China, but you can't come here. Today, obviously, our relationship to China is one of hyper-competition, right? China is, the fat, you know, last 20 years, the fastest-growing economy in the world. It's huge. Um, and while China was making widgets or iPhones, you know, that was one thing. That, in some ways, continues the tradition of the developing world making mass consumer items for the developed world. But once China started into high tech and science, artificial intelligence, 5G, et cetera, et cetera, then that's what um, Isabella Weber has called, you know, moving up the value chain. And that is uh, deeply 
worrying to uh, the United States. And in some ways, you could say the United States has already lost that battle in terms of uh, 5G technology sales around the world. So it's uh, hyper-competitive, and Biden has continued Trump's view of China as a strategic adversary. And that is a huge change from the previous several administrations, which regarded China as a competitor, but also uh, a country to engage with, quote-unquote. And in fact, China and the United States, uh, from an economic point of view, are both competitors and interdependent, right? It's not simply competition. It's, it's a much more complicated relationship. So that's why they can't unilaterally impose huge tariffs without some consequence, right? Because there's a lot of interdependence. So as long as the United States views China as a strategic adversary, that's bad news, I think, for Chinese Americans and Asian Americans in general. It all comes back around to us, you know, how we're viewed. Um, and Biden has spoken out of both sides of his mouth on this question, right? On the one hand, he's, he's absolutely opposed to violence and racism against Asian Americans. Okay, that's all very well. Thank you. We appreciate that. But then as long as he says, you know, we're going to bury China and the world economy, you know, it undercuts this, the first statement. So it's a complicated question. You know, China's a bad actor in many ways, too. Yeah. Um, and Xi, uh, Xi Jinping is an ultranationalist. You know, his rhetoric doesn't help. Um, yeah. uh, so it's, so they have to find some common ground to work together and to try to resolve these things. But as long as they view each other as strategic adversaries, I think it's very bad. It's very bad news for everybody. Yeah. Right. And we would be caught in the middle. Um, yeah. So you exactly. say, you say at the end of the book, uh, I'll just kind of read this a few lines that I think are, are on this point. The specter of a new yellow peril infuses contemporary depictions of China and its alleged threat to American and world security. The figure of the coolie has returned as the embodiment of unfair competition. Today's coolies are workers in China's manufacturing export zones and Chinese and Chinese American students at American universities. Both are imagined as automatons who endure arduous labor without complaint, assembling semiconductor boards or studying for exams 80 hours or more a week. And I think the analogy um, is clearest when it comes to, like, let's say, like manual labor or like the people, you know, obviously like the Foxconn factories making iPhones. One thing I was thinking, though, in terms of, you know, the story of Chinese migration in the 19th century, but also more generally complaints against Chinese migration then. And uh, more, uh, more recently, I was actually looking at um, Japanese migration and in in, in internment in the 20th century. And that was a complaint against them as farmers, not necessarily as like gold miners and workers. And I think initially, I always had this idea that this was about like a working class to working class labor antagonism. But I almost have started to think, right, it's, it's actually, it's broader than that. Like there's a complaint that they are capitalists and that they are business owners. And so it's, it is economic in nature, but it also is not just like restricted to a one class, right? It, it moves up and down the value chain, I guess, as you were saying. Yeah, I think what makes the Cooley myth pernicious is that it's not just about a condition of labor. It's not just a, a worker who's brought up as an indentured or, or or under contract. It's about a coolie race. The coolie race it includes both servile 
workers, the mass, and despotic masters. And uh, so it's part of China's or Chinese overall civilizational, which is code for racial condition, which is that it's a servile race. And that became important in the 19th century after the Civil War when contract labor or imported contract labor was banned, right, as was involuntary servitude. So especially after 1885, when there's a law passed against importing foreign contract labor, the, the rhetoric shifts. So that is all the Chinese, the Chinese are both the masters and the slaves, right? Yeah, right? It's all the exactly. Chinese fault. Right. It's, you know, so there's something innately about Chinese culture that creates this cooliism, right? They're both the slaves and the masters. And that's what you see replicated today, right? That whether it's uh, the Communist Party, the leaders, or the masses who toil in the factories, or whether it's the tiger mothers right, yeah, exactly. who oppress their children, <laughs> You know, it's it's all the Chinese themselves doing it to them, doing it to their own people, and that's what makes it a kind of racial condition and not a class specific yeah. condition, or even occupationally specific. Yeah. As you um, write about this stuff and teach about this stuff over time, do you feel like um, students these days are more receptive to these ideas that these ideas are changing, or do are you kind of worried that, um, or just like reading the news, I guess you're worried that these ideas actually are sticking around? quite stubbornly. Well, students today don't know any history, so when you <laughs> teach them history, it's all news to them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the progressive students, uh, and especially, well, I, I would say the progressive students I teach are really want to know this history and, and this uh, reckoning uh, with racism that's not just about anti-blackness. Right. You know, last summer, um, the president of Colombia, uh, Lee Bollinger, issued a very powerful statement around uh, George Floyd murder and trial and Black Lives Matter. And so the university had to really take up this question of anti-racism. Uh, but it was entirely framed as a question of uh, racism against Black people. And I understand that. I think that was appropriate at the time. And uh, and completely appropriate. But, you know, but there's more to racism than anti-blackness. And we have to understand racism in all of its specificities, right? The racism faced by Latinos or by Asian Americans or by Native American peoples is all distinctive. It's all historically based and driven. And, uh, and racism is not, um, is not easily generalized, right? Stuart Hall, the Afro-English, uh, Afro-British sociologist, I think, put it best. He says, you know, there's no such thing as racism in general. There are racisms, and they're all historically produced and reproduced. And so I think if we understand that and we take that as our approach, then we have to open our minds to more complicated questions um, and so my students, I think, are very interested in that because they're committed to anti-racism, but they don't, they're not always clear what that means, right? And, they, and they're less clear what it means in terms of non-blacks. Yeah. 
And this is also a subject of some debate among academics. Uh, I don't know how much it touches undergrad students. But, you know, you mentioned before Afro-pessimism. I mean, part of this outlook is the idea that it's all about Black and, and not Black. And um, and I, I don't buy that. I, I think it's much more complicated than that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I hope I appreciate the nature of anti-Blackness. But, but to say it's all black versus anti-black or black versus not black, um, I think cheats us out of a lot of understanding. Yeah. I'm curious because the, a lot of that stuff comes out of like cultural studies and other disciplines, but I've, um, I wonder if historians are paying more attention to it. I assume historians would be, would probably push back on it, but I don't know. It does seem like that these arguments have gotten a lot of mileage in the last few years. Yeah, I don't know if it's so much that um, I, I'm not sure how much Afro pessimism is is the topic of discussion. But the 1619 has been a flashpoint for this question, and you know, I I support that project. I think what they contribute is uh, is incredibly important. Um, but there is a tendency to say it's 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 all the same all the time. And, um, and I think, you know, history would, would ask for more nuance and it's supposed to be a historical project. Um, but it's not as, but you know, the civil war did happen. There was an emancipation. (laughs) It did make a difference, right? There was a very long civil rights movement. It did make a difference. Um, and, uh, history is not a straight line. It's not a linear line of progress, nor is it a linear line of dispossession, Right. Um, it's much more complicated than that. So I think, you know, right now we have to all defend 1619 Project. Right. That's <laughs> that's the only position we can take. But I think that, you know, as we teach, we want to have our students and our colleagues understand that, you know, there's there's more nuance. I just got the book, the, the book on the project. The book is actually much more nuanced than the initial uh, New York Times. OK, um, great. Yeah, I didn't know there was a second book or, uh, you know, besides the original. Thanks. Thanks so much um, for taking the time to talk about your book. Thanks for writing the book. Um, I hope listeners check it out. Um, Any preference in how they could buy it? Amazon, not Amazon, local bookstore, all that. Your local bookstore. (laughs) Yeah, great. Well, thanks so much for, uh, for talking with us today, May. Okay, thanks, Andy. 